0: Hey everyone, Corey here. Thanks for tuning into another episode of Flirting with Models. If you're enjoying the show, I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd take a moment to rate, review, and most importantly, share with a friend. Word of mouth is how this podcast grows. And if you'd like to learn more about Newfound's platform of return stacked mutual funds, ETFs, and model portfolios, head over to ReturnStacked.com. Now on with the show. Three, two hello and welcome everyone i'm Corey hofstein and this is flirting with models the podcast that pulls back the curtain to discover the human factor behind the quantitative strategy Corey Hofstein is the co-founder and chief investment officer
1: of Newfound Research. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Newfound Research's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Newfound Research. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Newfound Research may maintain positions and securities
0: discussed in this podcast. For more information, visit thinknewfound.com. In this episode, I chat with Mads Ingvar and Martin Oberhuber, co-founders of Kvasir Technologies, a systematic hedge fund powered by full-stack application of machine learning. By full-stack, I mean every layer of the process, including data ingestion, signal generation, portfolio construction, and execution, which gives us a lot to talk about. Our conversation covers topics ranging from the limitations of machine learning and hard lessons learned to how to keep up in a rapidly evolving field and thoughts about managing model risk. Given the niche knowledge in a field like machine learning, some of my favorite answers came when I asked about how they might perform due diligence upon themselves where Mads and Martin think other adopters of machine learning go wrong. For allocators, I think these answers are priceless. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mads and Martin. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. I'm I'm really excited about this episode. As I was telling you before we hit record, machine learning is a topic that I get a lot of people asking me to record more episodes about. I think it's really one of those fascinating topics because first of all, it's so broad reaching. When you say machine learning, it is such a wide area, but it's also one that's rapidly evolving the state of the art has changed so much over the last decade. And I know we're going to talk a little bit about that. And I think you guys are going to bring a really fascinating perspective to this because you started your earliest days actually as consultants. Started with your backgrounds. Mads, I know we're going to go into you a little bit with computer science. And that is actually where I want to start because you're not originally from the finance industry. You sort of worked your way into here, which I think gives you a unique perspective. So if you guys could begin maybe by giving us a little bit of the background and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah, for sure. And uh, we're happy to be here today, Corey. So for myself, I have a background as an engineer.
2: I did machine learning research um, for my graduate studies and then followed on to do a Ph.D. at UCL, where my research was based on machine learning for time series predictions and for, for unstructured data analysis. And UCL at the time was a quite fascinating place where many of the, the advances we see today in deep learning and, and machine learning in general were happening at a, at a fast place. And it feels like uh, half of the faculty there went to, to DeepMind afterwards, and, and the other half went and, and started at uh, businesses. Um, I fell in the latter category and founded a company based on my research where we deployed uh, convolutional neural nets for time series forecasting And through that lens, I got to work with many of the large institutional allocators and and asset managers and unique insight into how uh, these billion dollar portfolios were managed and had a chance to work with everything from alternative data sets, trading and risk models and execution infrastructure on a large scale.
1: Yeah, thanks, Corey, for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. My background is in computational finance. After graduating, I started working for a high-frequency trading firm as a quantitative researcher, where I was uh, mostly focusing on building machine learning models for European equities and futures. And already at the time, I started thinking about using similar techniques to exploit more longer-term patterns and started playing around with a few ideas on how to implement those strategies. I later then moved more into data science consulting, where I worked on several different projects in different industries, uh, but all ultimately around machine learning, predicting something. And this is also where I met Matt and Mike. And then later on, when I joined Goldman Sachs, I was focusing on machine learning applications for the securities division, and I was primarily responsible for optimizing uh, risk turnover. My journey with trading started soon after I left uh, the HFT shop i started essentially building out strategies for futures and uh, start trading out my own money with that and that developed more and more into kind of like a solid framework uh, which ultimately we're still using obviously in, in a more sophisticated way to this day but the early start goes back to 2016
0: and you just mentioned the firm name which i'm sure anyone who who will listen to the intro to this podcast knows i've i've at least butchered and you told me before we hit record the great story of the firm name. So, you guys, I would love for you guys to say that again while we're recording. Yeah, for sure, Corey. And I think, as, as you know, when, when you set out
2: to start a hedge fund, you you look at Greek mythology and you quickly find out that all of the good names are already taken. So, we had to look a little outside of that. And from my background in the Nordics, we obviously looked at North mythology and decided for Crassier and in north mythology cracy is a is a demigod being that is knows the answer to all questions and is unlike the the oracle of or delphi say is a benevolent creature that travels from village to village and disperses knowledge into the world and we thought that would be fitting What I forgot from my kind of North mythology classes back in primary school is that being classiers eventually killed and butchered by the peasants from dispersing too much knowledge
0: into the world. So I hope that won't be the case today. I love that story. And talking of small world, Martin, you and I realized before recording too, we actually went to the same graduate school program just a year apart. So I love when those connections are made. I want to start this conversation maybe with a bit of an open-ended question, but it's one that I'm sure is one you face just the headwinds of skepticism against machine learning. There's just a very healthy amount of skepticism in the industry. It seems like it's been adopted very strongly in other places operations research, pipeline management, all these other areas that machine learning has just been accepted and you see these huge efficiency gains and yet in the realm of finance, quantitative finance, there does seem to be a large degree of skepticism. How do you rebut that skepticism? Because I have to imagine it's something you come across in talking to allocators and institutions all the time.
2: Yeah, I think a lot of the skepticism stems from the view that machine learning and AI are somehow a black box that just churns out predictions. And while it's true that some people apply it that way, and it has applications in that realm, that's not necessarily the universal truth. And Then I think finance has also been slow to adopt these advances we've seen in in machine learning over the years. And one of the reasons is that people tend to use linear models in finance. I think that's a bit of a crutch. And I mean, we spent the last 50 years in finance since the the seminal Pharma French paper arguing over which factors that exist in the markets. But we, we spend very little time discussing whether using linear models to capture them are the right approach. And I think it's quite interesting, actually, as we see one of the few things that we can agree upon is that financial time series are non-linear and non-stationary in nature. But I think it's also worth noting that despite all the hype, then machine learning in finance is not just a silver bullet that will function out of the box. It's also not a substitute for clear, critical thinking and having a sound economic theory. And modeling financial time series is, my view harder than both self-driving cars or or facial recognitions and i worked in both of those areas and the reason is that the signal to noise ratio in in financial data is extremely low and then of course that we work in this non-stationary and even adversarial environment
1: Yeah, and machine learning generally, I think, are certainly often considered as black box techniques, but ultimately, it's the power that they have will allow you to pick up highly nonlinear patterns that are often prevalent in financial markets. And simple techniques are just not able to do that. Ultimately, it's the responsibilities of the researchers who apply these techniques to be responsible in applying the sort of like complexity the right amount of complexity for a given problem and not apply or use too many degrees of freedom in their modeling approach and um, you know end up overfitting and i think the reason why it has such a tricky reputation in the industry is because it's all too easy to overfit and, and probably many mistakes have been made by researchers where they end up deploying models, uh, end up trading a lot of money, and they didn't really add any value simply because the researchers thought what results they saw in in a backtest were realistic. Well, they completely overfitted. Getting this right isn't easy, and therefore it has probably gathered um, some negative reputation over the years.
0: Well, I do think, at least in my experience, these ideas of the acceptance that markets are non-stationary, that there's a low signal-to-noise ratio, sort of has people conceptually fall back on the idea that simpler models are going to be wrong, but robust, whereas more complex models may be able to capture those nuances, but are going to be caught completely offsides during a regime change, or they might pick up on more noise than signal. You started to touch upon that a little bit, Martin, and I'm, I'm going to go off script here, but I want to press on that point a little bit, because I do think it is one that is so important and I think trips up people on their journey into machine learning. How do you think about finding that balance of being able to model the complexities without necessarily ending up with a model that's inherently fragile?
1: Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think it's a continuum, right? Like it's not like black or white, where you're saying you're using traditional simplistic techniques versus uh a uh, highly complex machine learning. Machine learning itself is a bit of a loaded word. People don't exactly know what falls into that bucket, but from my perspective, I guess it's easier to think of all of these techniques as some form of statistical learning. And those techniques can start out very simple with a linear regression, perhaps with a regularized linear regression, which adds a little bit more value, especially for financial data, and then go all the way to ensembles of decision trees, to deep learning and, and it's a continuum right and the researchers task is essentially to pick the right amount of complexity for a given problem and because it's a continuum generally there isn't really a huge risk that one has to make a binary decision between a very simple and a very complex model and uh, really find that sweet spot is is what using machine learning in finance is all about really walking that fine line between extracting as much signal as possible while not overfitting. And that line is very fine, and it requires quite a bit of experience to approach it properly and know where that line is or where or how one can measure where that line is. And given those uh, difficulties or that a relatively high barrier to entry is probably part of the reason why it has gathered a little bit of a negative reputation over over time.
0: I want to start getting into the weeds a little bit, not just talk high-level machine learning, but actually talk about application And I was hoping for context, we could maybe just start off. You guys could tell us a bit about the investment strategies themselves that you manage, which I think will help inform the rest of the conversation.
2: We manage a long-short equity strategy and and a future strategy, and we trade them in in our fund in a multi-strategy approach. And we run a fully systematic pipeline that uses machine learning end-to-end. That means that basically everything from data ingestion, trading signal generation, risk and portfolio optimization is handled by machine learning algorithms. And we trade equities global and optimize both the equities and the, the futures portfolio together. The strategy is market neutral and we seek to have our returns uncorrelated to the market and and also to your typical factor
1: exposure. Yeah, we kinda of like model from a strategy perspective, we model individual names, however and we ultimately trade individual names in this. as Mats was saying, we optimize them from a global portfolio perspective. But when we, when we model these individual names, we do split up in kind of like sort of modeling the latent aspects of how markets behave, Think of it as as factors, not necessarily traditional factors, but underlying latent structures that make markets or individual names move together, like within a sector or the market as a whole. And then, in addition to that, we also model kind of like the idiosyncratic drivers for each stock individually, and finding that mix is is certainly the way to go for us, at least.
0: Mads, you mentioned there's sort of a fully systematic pipeline, everything from data ingestion to signal generation to portfolio execution all the way at the end, are there different machine learning techniques that are more or less appropriate at different parts of the pipeline? Like, Do you find that deep learning might be good, for example, for signal generation, whereas it doesn't work for your data gathering that you need? For sure. And it also
2: relates to how much data is available and what the resolution of that data is. And... For us, also, whether to utilize supervised or unsupervised machine learning techniques. So in some of the data ingestion or data processing, we use both supervised and unsupervised machine learning models to either pick out on signals already there or detect anomalies in the data structures or structural breaks that may be occurring. And that allows us to, to ensure that we have a data set that is as clean and stable as we can So that we have the best data foundation for our price predictions and other models and that also means ingesting price data tick data and fundamental data from multiple different vendors ingesting it ourselves and combining that already at the ingestion step so that we have a data set that we can utilize in in the rest of the pipeline then for price prediction that is inherently a supervised problem you want to learn the future expected returns and the future volatility of both uh, single name equities and futures and also baskets or groups of those. But then how we calculate and how we optimize uh, position sizing, bet sizes and the portfolio mix of those techniques.
1: Yeah. And, and perhaps to add two concrete examples, as you were saying before, it's definitely very crucial to understand which techniques to apply to what data sets, for instance, for the pricing prediction problem, In finance, or at least when you trade at the lower frequencies like we do with relatively low turnover, ultimately you don't get a lot of independent samples, right? I mean, like if we are thinking in terms of like daily data, but our holding periods are actually much longer than that. And so you can not easily apply deep learning techniques to that because simply don't have enough data. But then you have problems like using news data for augmenting the predictive power. There's a lot of like articles out there, news articles, or you can even use kind of like pre-learned models from the deep learning community and then apply it to your problem, in which case you have humongous amounts of data and uh, deep learning can actually be extremely helpful there. So it, it's all about finding the right techniques for the right problem.
0: Mads, I picked up on a phrase you mentioned. I don't even know whether you meant to mention it, but you said signal generation is inherently a supervised problem. And I was wondering with the acceleration and changes in machine learning over time, do you think that there are certain problems that will always be inherently supervised versus unsupervised? Or do you think there could be times in the future where even something like signal generation could become a non-supervised, a non-supervised approach? I think there
2: definitely is. And it goes back to what your outlook is as well. In the models we train and deploy, we see to model some sort of underlying cause and effect base our work out of economic principles. And instead of taking the more black box route, then actually knowing the ingredients that go into our model. So we very much follow the kind of scientific method where we, we start with a theory we know is sound, and then use machine learning models to test that out and apply that in the best way possible. And certainly, machine learning can be applied to pick up on unknown structures in the market. The problem with that is that you won't necessarily know if those will hold out a sample. And given that we can't generate more financial time series data, it can be very difficult to validate whether those will hold. I think a good example is from the actually pretty good book about Jim Simons and Medallion Fund, where in the midst of the dot-com bust, they were losing significant amount of money and it was consistent and what it turned out was that the model one of the black box signals they were trading was the model had picked up on the fact that nasdaq was going up and as nasdaq was going up they were buying more but when things were then crashing all around them then the model was losing a lot of money and they didn't know why so suddenly you're faced with having to kind of pick apart a black box model uh, in the midst of a crisis and that's also a spectrum of how nonlinear you want to go as well. And I think we prefer to stay on that side where we know the ingredients we put into the machine learning model is sound and then have the model improve upon the way that these things are combined and exploit the non-linear relationships that exist in the data. A good analogy here would be the same technique that DeepMind used in their AlphaGo and AlphaZero algorithms, so the machine learning algorithms that beat the best players in the game of Go. And what they started out with as well was a model that ingested all of the best players' games going back thousands of years and looking at each little strategy or tactic that people and these players at uh, the highest level of Go were We're deploying against each other in game after game after game. And that model was able to look at all of these games and pick out all of these strategies and then replay them in a way that actually allowed the model to beat some of the best Go players out there. And the next iteration, of course, was then to allow the model to start combining these learned patterns in a way that was completely non-intuitive to human players. And many of the moves the algorithm made were seen as ludicrous, but ended up being quite phenomenal. And that model beat some of the world champions, uh, chip or the world champions in, in go quite consistently. And the next evolution of that and where I think we, we may be going in finance, but it will take a take a little while, is that they then took that model and had had it play itself and other models over and over and over, generating Thousands upon thousands of games at each one refining slightly those strategies and coming up with completely new ones. That's the model that's currently unbeatable. We do a similar thing in finance. It's just a little more difficult for us to generate uh, more data. We have to kind of wait uh, to the closing bell every day. But our models do get better every day and we're able to pick up more patterns in the market and validate them as we see new data.
1: To expand on that, Corey, you asked supervised versus unsupervised. But with Matt's example, and and probably more concrete in finance, is, is supervised versus reinforcement learning. Like the DeepMind example that Matt's just mentioned is really an example of reinforcement learning where you interact with a system and the system will give you feedback based on your interactions with it. And many problems, the way they have been traditionally approached, but also still are in finance, we're using a supervised approach. For an environment that is actually suited ideally for a reinforcement learning type approach. Because, for instance, when we try to predict future asset prices, it's a different problem than, say, another supervised problem such as predicting the weather. The weather doesn't care whether you are predicting it correctly or not, or take actions based on it. But once you take actions on your asset price predictions, You will either remove that inefficiency that you found, or other players will start reacting to your traits. And very soon, you have generated feedback that your supervised model was actually not suited for treating properly. The issue with applying reinforcement learning techniques, where you actually learn while you interact with the system, are very tricky for firms like ours with our more longer term strategies because of the collection of sample points that we would have to get to really come up with a robust strategy. So reinforcement learning techniques are probably more appropriate for players in the high-frequency space than for us. But as Matt was saying, as we are trading, we're obviously collecting those samples and how the market reacts, but especially as it relates to market impact. And we will feed that back into our portfolio optimization.
0: And the reinforcement learning is a really interesting case where in a game like Go, there's a very obvious... My state versus your state. And the feedback is very direct, right? I make an action, you make an action, and there's that pattern. To your point, when you're making longer term portfolio changes that might be incremental over time, you might be able to measure what occurs in the market instantaneously, what sort of fills you get, and the execution you may see. And that might play out in that part of the pipeline. But I would imagine it's very hard to disentangle a position that might last months as to what impact it's ultimately having in the market and how the market's reacting to that. But that does lead me sort of to the next question I want to get to, which is a little open-ended, but it is about sort of the ongoing research process for you and the team. Because you do have this full stack machine learning approach, everything from data ingestion to signal generation to execution and portfolio optimization. How do you think about where new ideas come from? How that ongoing research takes place and how to prioritize those projects?
2: That's a really good question. I think we start with basically a question to answer, and then following that scientific method, that means having a hypothesis of what we think works in the market. And that could be fundamental drivers, technical drivers, other things that we want to look at, or could be data sets we want to explore. And then we don't believe that there is a single golden strategy that will like work forever out there, especially as you say that markets and economies evolve. So the key is then having a flexible setup where we are able to take these ideas and look at integrating them into our existing pipeline and existing model. So we use an, an ensemble of models and that allow us to to plug in and expand upon that structure and see if adding a new data set or a new feature to the setup will give us higher risk adjusted returns or improved sharp ratios and what we use there is something we call a feature framework that allow us to take that data and then specify it on a higher level and then we actually have a set of underlying models that will go and do the actual specification of that, make sure that the hyperparameters are, are well specified, the model is stable, and we, have, we don't have model risk in one area or the other. And that will then feed into the entire pipeline and then continuously improve our kind of ensemble of models and give hopefully better returns out of sample.
1: Yeah, and we have a huge pipeline of projects. And so to your question regarding, you know, how do we pick or prioritize these projects. It's a difficult problem, ultimately. So said, we have a big backlog of ideas. Some are more fleshed out than others. But ultimately, prioritizing those is on its own almost an optimization problem, right? Like we need to try to figure out we have a limited amount of resources and we need to figure out how do we best allocate them to really collect the best short, mid and long-term ROI because every project may lead to follow on projects or may be more focused on building out infrastructure versus going down a specific route of you know just testing out new data set. So we have to think of it in these different time horizons as well. And ultimately, it's a constant investigation and brainstorming of the whole team of trying to figure out what makes sense to approach next. And we are very much in the stage of, you know, we're using an eighty twenty 20 approach where we're not trying to squeeze the last bit out of an idea, but rather, you know, set something up. If it works, we kind we, we of like refine it, but otherwise move on to the next thing to ensure that we're not going down a rabbit hole.
0: Chris Meredith, who was on my podcast last year from O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, has a framework that I love when it comes to project management. All the projects his research team works on get proposed in the framework of sharp Ratio. So it's a question of, does this project enhance returns? Does it reduce costs? Or does it reduce risk? And how much is that going to change the sort of overall project sharp Ratio? I thought it was a really fascinating way to sort of look at it. Neither here nor there. You guys have, again... this He should really have used uh, the satinia ratio there, shouldn't he? <laughs> That's right. He should have. He should have. So given that you guys have this sort of models all the way down framework, how do you think about managing model risk? Because this seems like you could have something misspecified at the earliest stage. And given that these are highly nonlinear models, your errors can propagate in a very nonlinear way throughout the entire pipeline. How do you think about either capturing those models or recognizing that model risk is inherent and you need to design for failure?
2: Yeah, that's also a good question. I think we have draw a little bit upon our background here where collectively we in the team we we work with productionizing, machine learning, and deep learning models for some of the largest Fortune 500 companies out there. Um, So there's a good chance that you and, and maybe the listeners have already interacted with the model that we deployed for some of the big banks or asset managers out there already. So having that approach and being able to deploy deep learning and machine learning models in an environment where there is very, very little room for error, and you need to ensure that, and these are business critical areas we're talking about. That this will continue to work and improve the overall process, as we talked about. For us, that means doing a lot of stability analysis on the uh, on the models and making sure that any specification we do as researchers is done without with as few assumptions as possible. That means that we anywhere that we. As researchers would jump in, we would, instead of trying, a, say, a simple parameterization or a single hyperparameter, we'll actually have a model that rigorous way will go and test all of the different combinations. We'll see if there is convergence, if things are stable with different specifications. Going back to actually a lot of the work that you have done on trend and trend following, then you don't necessarily want a scenario where say using a 100 day look back window is fantastic, but using 120 days is an absolute chaos. So similarly in in specifying the machine learning models, we wanna do away with all of that specification risk that is very inherent in these machine learning models. And then for the actual risk inside of risk propagating in the models, what we use is an ensemble of models. So the data pipeline and the models that work at that stage will generally work to improve the data quality and make sure we have a good data foundation. And then the prediction models will look at that and make forecasts for each individual stock or future contracts, uh, as well as an associated volatility estimate. We actually have models that then look at those estimates as well as the conviction the model have in that assertion. And that allows us to, to look at that entire range of potential outcomes instead of relying on single point estimates. And that gives us in the portfolio and in the risk assessment a much better idea around the inherent risks of individual predictions as well as the opportunities that we have. And that helps us basically set a more stable portfolio and have more stable returns over time.
1: And it's crucial to have kind of like a modular approach to doing research. We have a fairly standardized lockdown backtesting system that researchers aren't touching that often, ensuring that whenever you try out a new idea, you compare it to other simulation results that went through the exact same testing environment. And thereby, you ensure that if you messed up, at least you, hopefully your backtesting environment test the model in, in the exact same way as before, rather than giving the researchers also the freedom to, every single time they come up with the idea, also tweak the backtester perhaps in their favor. Right? So it's important that you compare apples to apples. It will still not protect you from overfitting, but at least it will protect you from any underlying fundamental issues that your ideas may have, because you, you are going to be tested against a validated backtesting system that doesn't change too often.
0: I often find that some of the best lessons learned come from realized risks, right? That when risk materializes that you weren't aware is there, you either learn really quickly or you go out of business. Both of you have now at least a decade of experience in machine learning, different aspects, both outside of financial markets and within financial markets. I was wondering whether you could share any of the hard lessons that you've learned about applying machine learning. I think the biggest challenge is that overfitting is is lurking behind every corner,
2: especially in finance, even if you think you're looking at, at a sample data, then there's a good chance that you aren't. And even just being aware of how a market has behaved, then you may imbue the model with your kind of experience, which will then contaminate the research process. That means for many of us that's gone through say oh eight, oh nine or or even just went through the last couple of months here, then those experiences will be imbued in, in the models simply from having those experiences. So that's definitely one area where you have as a machine learning researcher have to be very careful. And then of course, we have we've seen and tried and done a lot of things that that haven't worked or didn't work out for a variety of reasons. Uh, that's looking at data sets or different models. Um, I think at one point we we counted every tree on Borneo with uh, deep learning nets to to see if that had a big impact on commodity prices and all of these things where there may be signal, but maybe the signal doesn't align with the. Investment horizon we have in the fund and our core strategies, uh, or uh, maybe the signals and noise ratio just isn't there, or we think that the opportunity may be too transient to capitalize on. So, I like the uh, kind of like I think Osam and, and the O'Shaughnessy guys do have that sort of a research graveyard where. You take all of these things that you tried out that didn't work, and you kind of you can put them to bed in that good way, and that also holds for what we do. And then, of course, anything that we deploy that can minimize complexity is also a positive, right? So if we can remove or simplify areas of our pipeline or process, that's a huge positive as well.
1: I think the biggest challenge, is, as Mats was saying, it's really around managing overfitting properly, and that is. Definitely true when it comes to model selection. And I've worked within several teams that over and over are making similar mistakes in the sense of like, let's say you run hundreds or thousands of experiments, and each time you evaluate a certain performance metric of your model, it could be the Sharpe ratio, but it could also be non-finance related. It doesn't really matter. But I've seen certainly that when you run these many experiments, your kind of like performance metric is a random variable. And if you end up picking blindly the best model, it's the same statistically. It's the same as as choosing the maximum of a random variable, and that ends up having you know you selecting a model that is way out in the tail from a performance metric perspective. But the expected value of that distribution is much lower. In fact, could even be negative right in finance, and, and so you deploy a model that performs a lot less well on expectation than what you've observed it in backtesting and understanding the discount factor of what you need to apply from your model selection or the performance that you see in model selection to what you should expect in completely out of sample or real life trading is crucial. And therefore, it's again, coming back to, you know, how important it is to manage overfitting properly.
0: Then my experience that for those people who survive the quantitative journey long enough, almost everyone... Comes to view everything as a random variable and cloaked in this distribution, and I don't know whether that's we're all converging on the same thoughts because that's how you survive, or whether we're all going to go extinct at the same time. But I, I agree, it's it's certainly you you start to. I think the approach when you first get into quantitative finance is very naturally to try to optimize on a variable, but when you realize they're all statistically indistinguishable when you're looking at this distribution it it suddenly changes your perspective on the whole idea of model generation
1: there is just a lot of noise out there right and researchers as they go in and become practitioners they will realize that it's very hard to extract signal especially in finance
0: do you think there are areas which machine learning is better suited to either areas of the markets or types of strategies that machine learning is better suited to and in areas where machine learning just may never be able to be successful?
1: Yeah, I guess as it relates to finance, um, I would say one concrete example that we've seen over the last couple of years is the rise of deep learning, which has taken some areas by storm, like areas where you have a high dimensional input space like computer vision or speech recognition, natural language processing, and arguably also areas where you have a lot of data and a reasonably strong uh, signal-to-noise ratio. So for those areas, deep learning has just blown old records out of the water completely. Are these techniques suitable for finance? Maybe, yes, no, occasionally, but they are much harder to get working for finance, partly again, because of that issue of having a very low signal-to-noise ratio, and in many cases, not having a lot of independent sample points. That, uh, you know, these techniques, if applied responsibly, can be useful for finance too. Ultimately, I believe that because machine learning is more like, we view machine learning as an extension to our brain. We use it as a tool to essentially help us prove or disprove our hypothesis using statistical methods based on data. And I would argue that there shouldn't be any area where data is involved and hypothesis or decision-making is involved that isn't considering using machine learning because ultimately, if you... Choose the appropriate techniques, they can always be supportive and helpful in trying to help you either prove or disprove your ideas or optimize them by optimizing the parameters that you give to the model that support your hypothesis.
0: The techniques that are considered state of the art have changed considerably in the field of machine learning over the last decade. I remember when I first started with machine learning in my undergraduate computer science studies, the state of the art was support vector machines. And now I think there's been like four iterations past that of random forests and deep neural networks, all made possible by advancements in both computational technology, as well as the algorithms that are powering them. How do you think about keeping up with the balance of the potential risks and benefits of incorporating these new techniques?
2: I think it is an evolving space, and we continue to try to be at the forefront of that. And going back to SVMs and, and the other techniques you mentioned, I had the pleasure, I think, of halfway through through my PhD, being able to take the last three, four years of research and replace all of the kind of traditional machine learning methods, uh, the mixture of Gaussian models, Kalman filters, and all of that. With a single neural network using convolutional neural nets, so when you experience that and you see the power that can bring, that kind of gives you an, a window into to how this space can evolve. And I started out doing a lot of image and video analysis, where convolutional neural networks uh, are especially applicable. And that was really one of the in the early days, the the kind of core drivers of deep learning research and. One of the cool things here in convolutional neural nets are that actually each kind of convolution or each layer will pick up on different structures in the images, and because it's visual, we can kind of ins- inspect it. And even though the combination are, are very nonlinear and not necessarily intuitive to to the human practitioner, then because it's it's visual data we're dealing with we are very visual creatures, then we can kind of see what the model is doing and picking up on. And one of the things that are quite interesting is if we look at, say, facial recognition, then the seminal paper by Viola Jones, and later we spend years in the kind of image analysis fields and in the different image groups around the world, specifying small features uh, that will detect like an eyebrow or a nose or how to pick out a mouth from an image. And we come up with all of these small features and kernels that will pick that up in the images. And what we've seen actually is that if you just, with no prior knowledge, start applying a, a convolutional neural net, actually each of the layers will detect different samples. So one would like specify in eyebrows, one would specify in different textures, being able to detect skin or hair, and one would be able to, to map out different colors. So you have... All of these features that we as humans have spent years defining by hand, a neural network will be able to pick up on automatically. And that's really one of the key drivers that we want to take into finance. Also, going back to some of the other things we talked about, being able to, to start with, with those key economic principles that we spend years looking at and sound economic theories, but start using machine and deep learning to refine and pick up and validate and apply these in a in a different domain.
1: And with that, it's hugely important for us to stay up to date and it does make sense because if you are able to get a bleeding edge technology working as one of the first players, you're able to reap in the benefits very quickly and at dramatic scale potentially. so it's it's absolutely crucial for us to be aware of what's happening on the advancements, especially in deep learning nowadays. But you mentioned risks, so of course, there are some risks, right? I mean, One big risk for us is to devote resources to potentially projects that don't lead anywhere. And and that's a big risk for us because we're a small team. The other risk, of course, again, deploying a model that is completely overfit because of its dramatic complexity. But hopefully our frameworks allow us to control for that reasonably well.
0: I know you just came back from a conference where you spent a lot of time talking to allocators, explaining your process. I want you to think about for a moment, if you were in the allocator's seat and looking to invest money with a fund that was claiming to use machine learning techniques, what would be the questions you would ask to do due diligence? No, that's such a good question. And we have some recent experience.
2: I think for managers, it depends on their level of sophistication as well. Some have good understanding of firms in general but limited machine learning understanding, and others may never have allocated to quantitative strategies at all. So trying to frame that where the allocator are in terms of sophistication is is obviously important. I think for, for us, one of the best questions we've gotten was from a quite sophisticated allocator that basically said that what they'd like us to explain was how we calculated the covariance matrix and we prepared this entire uh, presentation and everything. And then we ended up talking about covariance matrices for two and a half hours with them. And it should be stated that these were some pretty smart folks with master's degrees from Stony Brook. So we're really, uh, really getting into the weeds there. But from them, they found that that was really one of the key areas. And if people were smart enough to articulate that well, then generally that meant that a lot of the other things they were doing was also sound. I think in principle, doing due diligence on a machine learning fund is not too different from traditional diligence on a traditional manager. You need to understand the process and how well the team can articulate it, if what they're doing is also what they say they're doing, and if they have a sound process for how they go about their, their research. As a machine learning fund, we have the benefit, the approach that is Normally inside the head of a traditional PM, we are kind of codified and made more tactable in the way that we deployed it in machine learning models. But in essence, the approach of assessing whether we've done that
0: in a sound way remains the same between us and say a traditional manager. So I have to ask only because you brought it up. How do you think about building the covariance matrix <laughs> well, for two hours? <laughs> How how much time do you have? Maybe we'll get back to that question someday. Are there any questions that you guys get frequently from investors and allocators that perhaps maybe aren't as insightful as they think they are?
2: We get a lot of questions in line of the kind of interoperability of our models. And that goes back to this notion of machine learning as as a black box and that spectrum of, on one end, where no reasoning can be extracted, and on the other end, where it's actually sound components that have gone into it, but the combination of those may be, may be non-linear. And I think that kind of misconception may be fueled by other areas of machine learning, where you are happy to accept a more black box approach with better predictions, rather than more explainability in, in the models. And then... For us, that's similar to, I've done a lot of flying around, not so much anymore with the coronavirus, but when I get on a plane, and remember I'm I'm an engineer originally, so I remember a little bit from physics around how the shape of the wings kind of lift the plane up and all of that. But for all intents and purposes, a plane just remains a black box for me, but I really hope that for the engineers that build it it isn't a black box and they really know down to the finest detail how that thing stakes up there and i can kind of appreciate appreciate that so there is i think for us towards many allocators uh, the the key component is is really underlying that we build our models off of sound economic principles And we then use heavily nonlinear machine learning techniques to get the optimal performance out of that, uh, set the optimal portfolio and deliver the best returns possible.
0: Are there any parts of your process that in discussions with investors and allocators, you wish you got to spend more time discussing that maybe you think are more important than they're given weight in the conversation?
2: I think especially the areas around optimization, both of the process, but also of the hyperparameters and the portfolio construction. Going back to why the covariance matrix question was such a good question, that's because that touches a little bit upon all of those questions. Um, So exploring that whole part where if you as a researcher have an idea, how do you actually incorporate that into the existing framework how do you validate if there's signal in the data you're exploring? How do you validate if that holds out a sample? And how do you ensure that it's not something that distracts from, from the existing models? So, the dark side of machine learning, if you will, is that in inexperienced hands, then these algorithms are incredibly easy to overfit on the data. And, and that leads to this divergence between the in sample performance of the model and out of sample performance. So really honing down on that, and then asking what the kind of perceived generalisation error is of the model, I think is a key line of questioning that the many allocators should probably be poking at when they do their due diligence.
1: I definitely personally prefer to be tested or kind of like poked on my technical abilities because that's how we're able to really kind of like show that we understand the underlying concepts, as opposed to having higher level due diligence process where the technical questions are kept at the minimum. So we definitely prefer to be grilled on the covariance matrix construction with two hours than not having technical conversations.
0: Maybe we'll do a follow-up podcast (laughs) all about the covariance matrix. (laughs) Talk to me about, as more and more firms start to adopt machine learning, we're seeing varying degrees of success. And machine learning is an area you guys have spent a lot of time in and with over the last decade. What do you think other adopters get wrong?
1: I would say, I mean, you just need a lot of experience to get it right, really. And so initially it's inevitable that you make mistakes when you apply machine learning methods, especially in finance. Even more so when you come from the different field where you see all of these very complex models work really well and then all of a sudden in finance you realize, wow, there's actually not much signal to extract. One big mistake is certainly especially from less experienced practitioners to immediately revert to like very complex techniques to try to do the most sophisticated modeling possible while not really keeping track of overfitting. So, you know, validation overfitting is one of the things that happen all the time in such environments. And then hyperparameter optimization, not setting up the experiments properly scientifically to really Understand, you know, what hyperparameter space you should be looking at, and how to optimize for that. And in general, like neglecting certain aspects of a trading pipeline. For instance, people may initially solely focus on alpha prediction, right? While we believe, or our experience has been that portfolio optimization is just as important, right? To control your risk, to maximize diversification, so forth. And lastly, a very, very much an aspect that people first starting out with quantitative methods probably neglect this is modeling market impact properly it's crucial to understand the trading costs not just the fees and so on but really the market impact and that really allows you to exploit opportunities as fast as possible and i would say practitioners initially just uh, neglect those aspects and immediately focus on on alpha prediction where that is only you know uh, obviously an important part of the story but certainly not not everything
0: for firms that have yet to adopt machine learning, but really want to. Are there any incremental introductions that they can make, right? Some low-hanging fruit that they can start to build into their process, or is this really a wholesale philosophical change that they need to make?
2: I think there are are many applications uh, of machine learning outside of just short-term price predictions that seem to get most of the press. I think ultimately, you have to take the plunge. Otherwise, there will always be a barrier to entry. And I think people who are used to deploying ARIMA models or statistical techniques, then machine learning is a different world. So some of the low hanging fruits could be starting out with more simple linear models or regularized regression models, maybe moving on to more nonlinear models like gradient boosting boosted methods that offer a bit of an easier start. And then I think one of the key areas is, is always in looking at the data you generate yourself as a firm and how you can use that. And maybe that's around understanding how your existing process or your data, even your market impact or your execution process, how that works. And that can oftentimes be an area where there is some, some immediate improvements to be made.
1: Yeah, I mean, ultimately hiring the right people, right, that can apply these techniques to finance is absolutely crucial and, and giving them the resources that they need in order to do their job. And perhaps for a very young team, adopting these techniques, maybe not focus all their energy on just applying off-the-shelf algos. So, you know That stuff is fairly easy and everyone can do that. But really think about how to design an infrastructure that allows them to efficiently test their strategies and ideas, focusing on frameworks that standardize certain aspects like backtesting to ensure that researchers don't build their ad hoc research environments and are not able to really compare results that they generate. So really focusing on infrastructure and frameworks that support research is just as crucial as applying actual machine learning techniques for alpha generation.
0: Last question for you guys. As this is a rapidly evolving space, what do you think the future of machine learning and finance looks like?
2: I think we'll see, more investors both allocate to and also adopt quant methods. And I think the evolution will be fueled by many of the advances we've seen in other areas in, in machine learning. And I think we reached a point where there's really no excuse for not applying these models in, in finance. Machine learning allows you to add more and more detail to your existing process and your existing ideas. Um, That means also moving more and more into the very deep networks and deep learning side of things where the algorithms that are developed for the applications, be that reinforcement learning or other deep learning networks from from other areas, will continue to find new applications in finance and on time-series data. And that will be incredibly interesting to be part of and also see how, how that evolves.
1: You may end up in a scenario where, machine learning models trade against each other or invest against each other and there's no human left in the process. But that may not necessarily be a bad thing because ultimately finance exists to optimize the distribution of capital really, right? That is an optimization problem. So why not solve it with machines? I don't really see a problem in the investment side becoming more and more owned by machine learning models
0: with obviously a
1: human oversight.
0: My real last question here actually it's one I've been thinking about since we first got on together, and I know my listeners, our listeners, can't see this. I'm over here looking like Tom Hanks and Castaway, given this whole quarantine situation. And, and Matt, you're, you're looking like George Clooney. How is your hair so well maintained right now? That is the only. That's the only thing I have left to ask.
2: I I just have one answer, and that is testing, 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 testing. I love it. I love it. In the Nordics, I think we actually have an interesting A-B test going on. We've talked a lot about that aspect for machine learning, but we have a live situation going around right now, where in Denmark and in, in Sweden, we've had, I think I can characterize it as a, a slight rivalry over the years, uh, involving the side, waging wars for quite a bit of time. And in Denmark, we started early lockdown of the entire country. And in Sweden, they didn't. And then we've seen how that has kind of played out in real time, which has been quite fascinating to watch as a quant. I think obviously you can't really say one approach was better than the other because the, the assumptions and, and the knowledge you had at the time were just not, not enough to make a final conclusion. But it's quite interesting to see in, in real time. What it has meant though is that Denmark has actually seen less excess mortality than we normally have during those times. So we we recently reopened, among other things, hairdressers. So that was uh, that helped a little bit the look. But thank you, Corey.
0: I look forward to that day. Gentlemen, this has been fantastic. And I know the listeners are going to get a ton out of this discussion. So I can't thank you enough for your time. And I look forward to the next discussion about the covariance matrix.
1: Excellent. Thanks so much for having us.
0: Sounds very good. It was a pleasure to be here.